Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Elon Musk has lifted Donald Trump's Twitter ban. We have a wild show for you today. Congressman Mondaire Jones stops by to talk to us about the changes the New York political machine needs to make to ensure the Democrats' future dominance. Then we talk to ABC News political director Rick Klein about the midterms' unexpected outcomes. But first, we have the host of the podcast OK Computer on the tape and Market Watch, who well as a squawk box contributor Dan Nathan. Welcome to Fast Politics, Dan Nathan. Molly John Fast, thanks for having me back. Well, it's always a delight, and there's so much to talk about. And first, I think we should talk about, even though the midterms are a couple weeks in the rear view, we are still in this interesting period when a lot of people thought Americans would vote on the economy or their, you know, their fantasy of the economy or whatever that was. They didn't. And I'm curious to know, are you surprised? And furthermore, what is happening right now with the economy? Yeah, so interestingly enough, I mean, I, I think that there was so much concern over the prices of just kind of goods and services and just the increase kind of year over year, right? So that would be the term inflation that a lot of Americans have been feeling, you know, in the aftermath, of, I guess, of the pandemic. And if you think about um, a lot of what our government did, whether it be um, Congress, the White House, the, the U.S. Federal Reserve during the pandemic is they kind of flooded the zone with monetary and fiscal stimulus. They wanted to make sure companies didn't go out of business so they could keep people employed and they wanted to make sure that households were okay, right? And so they got through the pandemic for the most part, I think pretty decently, but then we kind of hit the the kind of pedal to the metal again last year with some more fiscal stimulus and that really caused an increase in um, inflationary pressures, but that was also caused by China's zero COVID policy, by broken supply chains, and then obviously the war um, in Europe. So I guess, you know, when we have this kind of number 
numbers. We had 40-year high readings in inflation. I think a lot of people thinking about how midterm elections usually go, right, for a first-term president. If you have a bad economy, it's usually lights out, right? And I think that was kind of overtaking a lot of the kind of, you know, thoughts about, you know, what's going to dominate at least voters' interest. And so in the aftermath, I, I think what's really important to kind of recognize the fact is that, yes, we have 40-year high inflation readings. I think everybody, economists, and I think just a lot of market strategists and people who just kind of follow this stuff politically also, we're pretty safe to kind of guess that inflation readings were going to peak sometime soon, right? And so here we are. That's what we're seeing um, right now. And so I, I guess the point is, is that this could actually set up really nicely, Molly, if you think about it, if all of these rate increases to battle inflation, right? So we've had mortgage prices go up, um, and that could be a near-term phenomenon. The economy could be setting up okay if we get through, let's say, the second half of 2023 into 2024, um, for this incumbent president and because this this kind of red wave never materialized here. So again, the economy might be doing okay, or at least a lot better than I think a lot of politicians or voters thought as they headed into the midterm. Part of that is anxiety. It's I, I want to say it's like Carter anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. The 70s were a period with a lot of inflation and, you know, it ended up ending the Carter presidency. And I feel like every time people talk about inflation, or at least me, in my mind, I go right back to Carter. And I feel like that anxiety kind of permeated the narrative to a certain extent. Totally. Because we had this oil crisis, right? There was so much focus on oil because that's the thing that most um, you know, individual consumers, they feel the pinch at. But I also say this is really important part of this is that you know we had unemployment down to 3.5%. This was before the pandemic. And where is it uh, unemployment right now? It's only at 3.7%. It just picked up a little bit. So after we saw unemployment shoot up during the pandemic, it came right back down to those pre-pandemic levels. So I guess the good news for the economy is that we had a pretty decent savings rate for consumers. So their balance sheets were in good order coming out of the pandemic. And we didn't see unemployment you know, shoot up very dramatically right now. And that's kind of the last piece of the puzzle that the U.S. Fed is kind of focused on as they think about their battle with inflation. They've raised interest rates dramatically. So Fed Fund Futures, this is the interest rate, the short-term interest rate that the U.S. Federal Reserve can controls, they've raised it basically 3% over the last four meetings. This is the fastest increase ever. And that's why you've seen mortgage rates go up pretty dramatically, but you've also seen a lot of housing data come in. So they wanted to cool off some of these asset bubbles a little bit. And I guess the silver lining is if they can do this without the like without unemployment going up meaningfully, then that would be, again, a good situation for the economy as we get into, let's say, the backside of 2023. The one thing I think is probably a near certainty, there will be a recession. But I guess the point is if that happens at some point in 2023, at least the things that I look at this stuff with through the lens of the markets, they will have already discounted that at some point. Right. So we could be in a recession right now and not know it. And by the time we realize it, we could be out of it. Correct. And, and then also if we're able to do that in a manner where unemployment doesn't go up meaningfully. But I guess the next part of this you know, equation is, is that notion of stagflation. You just mentioned Carter in the late 70s and what that did for his presidency. Stagflation is a situation where prices um, of goods and services have gone up. They can come off their highs, which I expect that to happen 
happen with this situation, but you have lower growth, right? And so if you have higher prices and lower growth, it makes for a really, like the, the name says, a, just a stagnant environment. So um, again, I, it's not like we're going to come out of this pandemic and we're going to have this rip-roaring economy, which a lot of people thought we were going to have. We might go back to the pre-pandemic growth, GDP, gross domestic product, was averaging about 2.2%, which is not great. It's not bad or whatever, but it was also in and around where inflation was at about 2%. And so at the end of the day, we just might be in an economy that's saddled with a lot of debt that was there to help um, you know, kind of make sure we could stay afloat during the pandemic. Then we had inflationary pressures on the way out of it. This seems very likely if you put so much, you know, capital to a problem like this, you're going to have an increase in prices. So, you know, we just 2023 is not going to be a great year for the economy. It's not probably going to be a great year for markets, but it could also be a really good digestion year considering the prior three years that we've been in with also the dismantling of some major forces. If you think about this whole this deglobalization and our reliance on cheap foreign labor and supply chains oriented around China. That's coming apart right now. And that's also inflationary. Well, and also it's going to be less bad than we thought it would be, <laughs> which I think is the important data point. Well, right. right. But you know what? The U.S. government, the U.S. consumer, U.S. manufacturing, we made a deal with, if you can call it the devil, you know, 40, 50 years ago about focused on cheap labor about jobs that supposedly Americans didn't want to do. And, and what did that do? Well, we got cheaper goods, right? And, and so that's something that's been going on um, for a long time. Now, if you think about, it's not just supply chains, but it's also energy as, as a point of national security. I think that's something that we're going to come out of this period and think, you know, you know, maybe that's right. And I will tell you this, you, you probably haven't heard me compliment um, the prior president too much. I mean, I don't think the way in which they put the trade war in place with China, I didn't like how they did that. OK, but I think they were right on a lot of issues there. You know, and I think that if you just think of what the Biden administration, they have not kind of backed off a lot of those right. tariffs that we've had and some of the issues that we've had. They, they've been much tougher. I know that you've spent some time talking about this on your podcast, but the export ban of advanced ships, you know, from the U.S. to China. I mean, that was like a major, major shot across the bow. Right. And also they're bringing manufacturing back to United States, right? They're building right. the, you know, factories. They're encouraging. Right. So the CHIPS Act was a great example. I mean, this is 50 plus billion dollars. You know, a lot of people think it was corporate welfare. They wanted to incentivize U.S. chip makers to kind of make those factories here, employ workers here. Again, the problem is, is that if you make iPhones that already cost about a thousand dollars to consumers, you make them here and you reorient your supply chains here, okay, in the West, those iPhones, they're going to be a lot more expensive. And then the last part of this whole inflation piece is that once wages start to go up, which is really what's happened here over because we have a shortage right now, and obviously this is a huge immigration issue. So we have a shortage of workers. And if we have a shortage of skilled workers, I mean, demand for them is going to go up and then those wages are going to stick. And that's a really difficult scenario for corporations, especially U.S. multinationals, who've actually gotten really used to cheap foreign labor. Matt, 
Matt Greenfield, my long-suffering spouse, was talking about an inverse yield curve, and I pretended I know I knew what he was talking about. Glazed Ex- over eyes. <laughs> right there. Explain yep. to us what that is. Yeah. So, so, so we just talked about how quickly the U.S. Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, and one of the things they're trying to do there is kind of tamp down asset bubbles. So, if rates are higher, the cost of money is higher, and therefore, you know, valuations on assets should be lower in that scenario. So they were unusually low to battle the pandemic, right? We just talked about. So they've raised them kind of quickly. So if you look at inverted yield curve, really what it's signaling is the two-year U.S. Treasury yield is above the 10-year yield. And that should be shorter-term money should not have a higher interest rate than longer-term money. Just, just think about it really simply. 10 years is a lot more time for things to go wrong, and maybe you don't pay that um, that debt instrument back. Two years is, is a shorter period of time. But the two-year is reflecting what the Federal Reserve has done and what they're saying about how they're going to battle inflation. And therefore, the 10-year yield is more reflective of potential growth in the, in the future. So the 210 spread, that's inverted to the tune of the two-year treasury yield being higher than the 10 is saying stagflation. And I know that may seem like a lot. Maybe that kind of puts together the conversation that we just had. But basically, lower long-term growth is what the 210 spread inverted means. And the two-year being higher right now is just suggesting that um, you know the Fed is going to stay the course on higher interest rates. And I guess the point but also make is that an inverted yield curve like this, to Matt's point, has almost every single time it's happened resulted in a recession, or excuse me, put differently, every recession that we have had in the last, call it 60 years or so, has been preceded by a 210 yield curve inverting. Right. That was what we were talking about, whether or not there was going to be a recession. He said, well, the yield curve is inverted and I wanted to ask him, but lost interest. But I'm glad you answered that question. And now our listeners can know all about the inverse yield curve. Let's talk about my favorite subject. And it's actually quickly not becoming my favorite subject to the death of Twitter. I never thought he would go through with it. Now he's gone through with it. Now he seems, I mean, he seems like he's just desperate to destroy it unless you can explain to me. I mean, Explain to me what's happening here. Well, it's from my point of view. I mean, I think he, he, he the guy tried to fix the Ukraine, um, you know, war in Russia. <laughs> uh, he's not a political science he, right. scientist. He claims that, you know, he's, he's a rocket scientist. He's not one of that. He, he's not that either. Right. So here he is now. You know, he's like you, you've been following all this stuff about all this coding and stuff. He's not he's not a he's not a computer scientist. He, I, it, it's just really kind of funny. Right? I think he really thinks he's got a God complex. I really think he thinks he can fix this thing. I think the most important thing is that Jack Dorsey, who is the founder of this company, two-time CEO, who was CEO uh, a little more than a year ago, okay, before he gave up the reins of that, he was running this company into the ground, being the CEO of two companies, Square, which was one of them, and then Twitter was the other. So so this company monetizes their user base at a, at a much you know worse rate to some of their competitors in social media. Their audience or their users are growing much slower. Okay, that was the case. So he thought he could come in here and get rid of all these bots that he thinks is this massive problem 
problem here um, and, and make it just a better place is this kind of what digital town square that he calls, um, you know, which would be great for humanity. But in doing so, he's really, and again, I know you're following this because I'm following you on Twitter, <laughs> which is kind of meta here. I mean, he really is putting this platform on the brink. I know a lot of really smart people who like to sound smart on Twitter say it's much harder, you know, to have something like this. These these systems are much more resilient. So if you even get rid of thousands of people on a 7,500 um, employee base, it won't matter because this thing has been built for all these years. Um, I don't know. The things that you're focused on, trust and safety and all those other issues about disinformation and battling those sorts of things, you'd think that people are really important to those processes, right? And so all of those people are gone. Most of the people, what it sounds like, who had real important jobs there about the direction of the platform are all gone there. You know, maybe there's some hardcore libertarian bro tech people who are sticking around because they're just like always been Elon fans. But but again, I just don't think it's the sort of place that people are going to want to go work. And I think what's really clear is that advertisers right now don't want to be there. And this is a company that's reliant on big advertisers, you know, is very different over at Facebook or Meta. They have like lots of small medium businesses that are local. Twitter relies on large companies to advertise. And then you also saw over the weekend that CBS News said they're going to stop tweeting. You know, I mean, yeah. just think about that, right? Think about you. You take your a million followers, right? And you all the content that you're putting out there throughout the day. Let's say you go somewhere else. And maybe that's this post thing. I've seen you and Kara Swisher tweet about, I just signed up for it. I'm going to follow you first thing tomorrow. But there could be an alternative. And, and again, I don't think he wants to kill it now. I do think, though, that he has a situation where, and you and I have talked about this before. I mean, he bought this thing for $44 billion. Right. He got a bunch of banks to give him nearly $13 billion in debt, right? And that debt is trading at like 60 cents on the dollar right now. They haven't even been able to place it. He also has been selling his Tesla stock to fund the purchase. He's also probably pledged a lot of Tesla stock, okay, to kind of be part of the equity. He also had a lot of other equity people come into it who held equity in the public company, rolled it into the private. But there's a scenario where, you know, he probably paid, um, you know, 25 billion more than it's worth and, um, you know, so he's got a scenario where it's not a great financial setup. Like it will really be hard for him to make money anytime soon in the next three to five years on this thing, which is usually what you would hope to do if you were going to take a public company private, you're going to lever it up with debt, you're going to cut costs and you're going to try to get faster growth and then re-bring it back to the public markets at a higher valuation to make money on that. It seems very unlikely he's going to be able to do that. It seems to me like even if he just has $13 billion of his personal wealth in it, that seems like a lot of money, but maybe I'm stupid. Can he just afford to do this? Well, it sounds like he's got a lot more than, than $13 billion. So if he paid $44 billion, he's got $13 billion in debt on it, okay, that, that, that basically, you know, he's on the hook for. It. He owns it, right? And then, you know, so then all the equity, he's been selling stock in Tesla shares. So think about where he gets his money, right? So he was like, he's supposedly the richest man in the world. Um a lot of his wealth has been tied up in Tesla, which is a publicly traded stock. It has a $600 billion market cap, um, which is one of the largest market cap companies in the U.S., just to be really clear. But it's also down 
50% from where it was trading a year ago, all right? And he also has a lot of his wealth tied up in SpaceX. That's the rocket company, right? But that is a private company, so he doesn't have liquidity there. So if he wants to go out and spend millions or billions, he's asked, he either has to sell stock in those companies or pledge shares of that, okay, to, to basically get the money to do things. But right. if Tesla's stock goes much lower, then the value of, the, of his assets goes much lower. So he's really tied to the markets. He's really levered here. And just, you know, if you think about everything that's going on right now, when you have interest rates go up as quickly as they've had, why has crypto and Bitcoin, all this stuff just cratered? Why are we starting to see some of this corporate malfeasance, this stuff where people weren't, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure Matt Greenfield spent a lot of time talking about, you know, this FTX situation in right. the crypto world, right? Right now, there was no really good due diligence done on a lot of stuff. And the cult of personality of some of these founders, people like uh, Elon, people like this SBF at FTX, people like this woman Holmes from Theranos, where right. you have really smart people just throwing money at them and not asking the hard questions in periods like this, you know what I mean? This is when you see a lot of the frauds, the phonies and, 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 you know, you see it exposed. And I think we're, we're seeing that there's a lot of people who think that Elon, while he's not a fraud, like some of these other financial frauds. That his company is very overvalued. Yeah, well, they think, well, the company's overvalued. And the reason in which people are willing to value the company, Tesla in particular, is because they think he's the smartest guy in the world and he's going to do something fabulous. And he's already done something fabulous. Okay. He's moved the electric vehicle business, and I don't compliment him too frequently, right, right, you know, right. he's moved all of these incumbents, whether it be Detroit, whether it be the Germans, whether it be the Japanese or, or the Koreans, they've moved them, he's moved them to a place where they probably wouldn't have been on their own moving cars to, you know, to be, you know, fully electric fleets at some point. I don't know, a lot of these guys say by, you know, 2030 or something like that. So he's done that. But does this company deserve to have a $600 billion market cap? Because I, I don't really think so. At the end of the day, it's just going to be a car company when every other company is just making electric vehicles. Yeah, that's what I think too. Dan Nathan, please come back. I will. Thanks, Molly. I appreciate you having me. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast NBA DNA with Hannah Storm digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. 
And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. (sighs) Good one, Dad. (sighs) Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of... dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Congressman Mondaire Jones represents New York's 17th Congressional District. Welcome to Fast Politics, Congressman Mondaire. (laughs) It's good to be back. We're so happy to have you for any number of reasons, but the first of which is, so do you want to tell listeners for the people who are not like extreme congressional junkies what the midterms have brought to you? The midterms have resulted in the salvaging of our democracy, at least for a few more years until 2024. (laughs) Yes, that is the good news. But in New York, it's been kind of what we say on this podcast, because we can curse, a shit show. Oh, I'm so glad I can curse. (laughs) New York's redistricting has been a disaster and no one wants to take responsibility for the margin that Republicans, the anti-democratic party, the anti-democracy party has in the House of Representatives can be explained by the number of seats that flipped Republican in the state of New York because of a gerrymander that was struck down by the New York Court of Appeals. We had an independent redistricting commission here that could have handled things far better than what the Democratic legislature did. And of course, the fact that the lines had to change at all was the result of Andrew Cuomo. A deal he cut in 2012 when many of us were still in high school. I mean, not me and maybe not you, but many other members, you know. (laughs) Anyway, so go on. Yes. Well, Andrew Cuomo is the reason why we even had to lose a congressional seat in the state of New York, uh, because we only lost it by 89 folks who simply did not complete the census. And that was or can be explained by the fact that he did not disperse many millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars for purposes of census collection. So there's a lot of blame to go around. So anyway, what happened with the redistricting was Sean Patrick Maloney, who was the chair of the DCCC, right? Yes. Um, He decided he would take what was half of your district and run there. He lost. The district that he ran in is a district that I currently represent 70% of. Right. And I had a choice, as you know, Molly. I could have run against the chair of the DCCC, the (laughs) the guy whose primary job responsibility it is to help us keep our majority in the House and, and defeat fascism in this country. And I never imagined that after taking one for the team that the gentleman from New York's 18th congressional district would lose in New York's 17th, a district that I would have won 
Um, and so you can imagine how I feel right now. But, you know, the good news is we did keep the Senate. Wait, how do you feel right now? Because I'm thinking about it and I was thinking, how would I feel? I don't know. How do you feel? Do you feel like vindicated or do you just feel devastated? No, vin- vindicated feels petty. Right. I never imagined after having been a leading, highly effective member in the United States Congress for the past two years, that I would wake up one morning and because of the incompetence of so many people. (laughs) There's a lot of blame to go around. (laughs) Be made uh, to, you know, make this impossible choice and not be allowed to continue serving the community that raised me and that I have been delivering for. And so I'm just sad, frankly, by the outcome and by the knowledge that Democrats would have the majority in the House of Representatives. Right. And we would still be able to pass legislation for the next two years were it not for the former governor of the state of New York, leaders in the state legislature, the chair of the DCCC, and some other federal legislators who coordinated with the chair of the DCCC in terms of pushing a blatantly illegal partisan gerrymander that was ultimately struck down by the Court of Appeals. I would have much preferred the maps that were drawn by the Independent Redistricting Commission. It certainly would have avoided the impossible choice that I had to make. So let's talk about Jay Jacobs. Jay Jacobs is the chair of the Democratic Party of the state of New York. Talk to me (laughs) about Jay Jacobs. I don't know the guy. He's the chair of the New York State Democratic Party. He runs summer camps. <laughs> Does he? Yes. <laughs> what he, that's, I think that's what he's busy doing. Okay. Yes. Well, much has been made of his failure of leadership when it comes to not investing in an infrastructure that could have helped Democrats hold on to and win seats in those seats that were flipped. I mean, four seats went were flipped to Republican this cycle in the state of New York. That could have been avoided. Which is, by the way, will probably be the difference between a Democratic Congress and a Republican Congress. Kathy Hochul performed much worse than she should have. Uh, I mean, she lost in you know my, my hometown county of Rockland, which is a county that Joe Biden won and that I won quite handily in 2020. You know, one wonders why, given this track record, which, by the way, extends well beyond what just happened this cycle, that someone would be allowed to continue in this role, right? I've worked in corporate America. (laughs) I've worked in government. Uh, It is extraordinary because, as State Senator Zelnor Myrie mentioned to Politico a few weeks ago, by what metric are we judging success? Certainly not in terms of electoral victories, certainly not in terms of fundraising, certainly not in terms of infrastructure, certainly not in terms of cultivating a a new generation that is really where a lot of the energy in the party is right now. Because what we've got is not just Mr. Jacobs, because I I really do think that focusing on him has distracted from a broader reckoning throughout the leadership of the party that needs to take place. It is certainly the case that many of these people are more hostile to progressives than they are focused on defeating Republicans. Yeah, that's a really good point. We're in this position. What can people in New York do? Is there a way to sort of unravel this disaster in New York? And it's funny because the two states where Democrats did the worst are New York State, which has a very problematic Democratic Party, and Florida, which has almost no Democratic Party structure, infrastructure. First, I hope that there is 
an opportunity for the independent redistricting commission to do its job in redrawing the assembly maps. The court has ordered that the assembly maps in the state be redrawn. I continue to believe in this independent redistricting commission rather than what we saw take place in the state legislature this year, which got struck down by the Court of Appeals. There also has to be new leadership at, at the at the level of party chair in New York State. And again, I, I, I regret that, you know, people feel personally attacked. But what this is really about is making sure that we have competency going into 2024. I also think that the this leader needs to be someone who brings people together. We have a beautifully diverse Democratic Party, uh, and that includes ideologically. There are plenty of folks who could bring people together. We've, we've got a big tent, and I understand that what works upstate doesn't always work in, in Brooklyn, for example. I know that well. But the fact is, we have to create room for the talent that tends to be younger and oftentimes though not always, is progressive in this party. There has to be room for everybody if we are to defend and strengthen our democracy, protect fundamental rights, and build an economy that works for everybody. But that means winning elections. It does not mean Eric Adams validating the hysteria <laughs> over crime that exists. I live in the Hudson Valley, right? So Rockland County is the third safest county in the entire United States, according to U.S. News. Westchester is the fourth safest county in the entire United States of America. You would never know it based on the campaigns that Hudson Valley Republicans are running. By the way, Putnam, I think, is number 12, 12th safest county in the entire United States. So we can talk about the problem of crime, which is a problem, without being reactionary and validating the misinformation and disinformation that we see Republicans pushing. Unfortunately, we don't see that from Eric Adams and others who are afraid to lead on this subject. So talk to me about this lame duck, because there's an opportunity to do a bunch of really important things in the lame duck. Talk to me about what you think will happen. In order to prevent the government from shutting down or to make that less likely in the 118th Congress, which will take shape in early January of next year. We've got to raise the debt ceiling. We cannot continue to allow Republicans who are not interested in and I don't think could govern if they wanted to. Right. Which they luckily they don't. <laughs> from taking the government hostage. And so we can do that through reconciliation, which is a process that may be familiar to folks. It's how we we're going to pass Build Back Better through the Senate. It's it's how we passed the Inflation Reduction Act this year in August, that historic legislation to lower costs for our seniors on Medicare and to invest in climate action. And, and we still got an opportunity to do that. And there's an appetite to do that. So I, I hope that we take care of that. There's also a lot of discussion about things that we can include in the NDAA, which is something we pass on, a, on an annual basis. Can we put voting rights in there? Can we put Supreme Court reforms in there? like ethics reforms. That's what I'm pushing for right now. Right. No, that makes sense. Where are you on this leadership election? Talk to me. I get to sit in the chair and just observe. Right. No, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so many of these races have already been decided. As of, you know, a few hours ago, deals were being struck. I think Nancy Pelosi, and I know that there are some leftists who are, who are going to be upset with me, is the most effective speaker of the House in modern history and quite possibly in the history of this country. Yeah. I say that as someone who has had a very good seat at the table as the youngest member of House leadership and has seen how she has 
push through the president's broadly popular economic agenda and has done battle with some of the most conservative obstructionist voices in the Democratic Party. It is interesting to me that so many folks on Twitter are and have been calling for her to step down and to turn things over to a new generation. I wonder how those people will feel if her successor is not as accommodating of progressive voices as she has been. Oh, that's a really interesting point. That is the thing we saw a lot was that, you know, she tried very hard to bring people together from different parts of the Democratic Party. That's exactly right. And it's been tough and it's been frustrating. And I have not agreed with every decision policy wise and tactically that the speaker has made. But I have seen her push for broad reforms in the child care space and in other spaces when we had that major debate over Build Back Better and the bipartisan infrastructure bill uh, almost a year ago to the day. You know, she also, when Rahm Emanuel, the former chief of staff for Barack Obama, you know, was trying to, to move on from or, or, or pivot away from Obamacare, uh, and then tried to water it down. I mean, she was the one who pushed for an aggressive piece of legislation that would really expand health care to tens of millions of people in this country. I'm a student of history, so I, I'm aware of these things, even before having served in Congress myself. Yeah. And I, I encourage people to educate themselves. That's a really good point. You know, I'm sure you read that article about her whipping votes and having the person's cousin call them and the Ed secretary. You know, that's a certain kind of, I mean, I don't know, there's a certain, thing about her. Oh, Molly, <laughs> that is, that's nothing. I, I, I read that too. And I'm like, if that, if that's the best story you've got. <laughs> really? You saw, you've seen more persuasive persuading from Nancy Pelosi. Please share. I would just say that the speaker knows where all the bodies are buried, right? right. I mean, she's got, she's got relationships with so many members of our caucus spanning decades. And so what Tom Perriello was described in that article as having experienced was one of the more muted <laughs> <laughs> forms of persuasion. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you so much for joining us, Mondaire. I just spilled water all over my desk, as I often do during this podcast. But you were great, and I really appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me on. Rick Klein is ABC News' political director. Welcome to Fast Politics, Rick Klein. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. We're thrilled to have you. The thing I really want to talk about, which I feel like we haven't talked about enough, if that makes any sense, is are you were you shocked by those midterm results? No, I was surprised, I would say. Uh, not shocked. One reason I wasn't shocked is that the polling was actually kind of right this time. Uh, and Okay, so talk about that more. Yeah, so I mean, we, we did polling at, at ABC News with the Washington Post, showed it to be, I think, a one-point edge for Republicans on the generic ballot, um, leaned heavily into state polling, and, and you know, the uh, partners at 538 were doing a lot of work on this, and they basically had it as a coin flip for the Senate with a lot of coin flip races. Ultimately, Republicans did get a little bit of an edge in the generic ballot and a slight edge that puts them over the top to win the House. And then the Senate came down about what we thought. So there were individual results that certainly surprised me, maybe even shocked me. I was I was extremely surprised that she saw Patrick Maloney lose in New York. Yeah, I was very surprised, frankly, that Catherine Cortez Masto pulled it out in Nevada because she had been down. 
down. Yeah, but John Ralston. I know. I I, I, I should have learned the lesson. So so you know, way back in way back in 2010, when everyone thought that Harry Reid was was definitely going to lose, I remember making a bet with my friend John Berman, who was part of our digital coverage. I just said, I'm I'm going to go with Ralston. I don't care what anyone else says. And he was one of the only people that said that Reid would hang on, and he did. So I should have learned that lesson. People got it right. It just you know, in the aggregate. I think that we we were expecting something different for a couple of reasons. One is inflation. Yeah, every historical indicator for a president's first midterm with inflation double digits, with a president in the approval rating in the high 30s, low 40s, it's a wipeout. Right. And the other thing, frankly, is I, I don't think we fully believed the polls because we knew that they had been wrong before. So I think in our heads, even if it wasn't explicit, I think in our heads we saw 48, 48 in a race and thought, okay, tie goes to the runner. You know, Republicans are going to win that by a couple of points. And we thought that across the board. And so, again, that's that's why, you know, surprised but not shocked. I, I think we were pretty honest with our audience about the fact that this was a very close race and it could go either way. And there were extraordinary forces in both sides. It wasn't just inflation and the president's first midterm. You had Roe v. Wade being overturned. You had the insurrection and, and democracy being on the ballot and all of those things factored in different ways in different places. I wonder how much the lesson is like. So we're talking about John Rolstad. I think his paper is called the New Nevada Independent. Yeah, that's right. The Independent. Yeah. I want to talk about Nevada because Nevada, we had actually Cortez Masto on this podcast and everyone I know and remember, I know many more Democrats than Republicans was like, she is not going to win. Yeah. And I want to talk about that because Ralston said she's going to win. And then when the votes came in, he said, people are not voting in person. These numbers are just have to be wrong. There has to be a huge number of mail-ins. And again, all of us were like, well, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. And what I think is interesting is like, in the end, it were it was a couple of unions, right, who pushed her over the top, right? The food worker. Yeah, and the Reed machine, right? It was the, right. it was the, you know from the grave. Harry Reed's machine is still operational, and they put together a way to win elections. And they took advantage of the fact that you can bank a lot of votes before election day and focus your right. organizing on election day on a smaller smaller universe. I think. Republicans, I talked to a bunch of Republicans in the run-up to the election who were very heady in their expectations. I asked one prominent Republican, I said, what's your fear now? What could go wrong? And he said, well, our voters have to vote on election day. We think they're going to, but they have to. And the Democrats have long since adopted this strategy of, of trying to bank as many votes as possible and to organize. And I think that's in Nevada and elsewhere. Bank what you can, get it done, and then focus on the rest. And Republicans have you know, they, they had been doing that really up until Trump and Trump, I think, trashing the idea of early voting has set them back pretty considerably in terms of that organizing. Yeah, I want to talk about that, too, because that is such an interesting situation. And it has so it has so continually backfired for Trump. So Trump only believed in same day voting. He had this sort of anti-voting bent in a way, right? Yeah. Like mail-in voting is bad, you know, got to make sure, don't trust the system. But I do think ultimately, like this message of don't trust the system, it leads people to not trust the system. The problem is if you don't trust the system, you don't vote. Yeah. And we saw it directly in Georgia in the runoffs early last year. And I think in this case, you had a lot of states that have, even before COVID, made it a lot easier to vote early, vote absentee. There's other ways to do it. We had long since been just a purely election day society. You know, I think it was something like a third of the vote was was early, even before COVID. And then COVID accelerated a lot of those trends and states changed their laws and made available other options. And people want to vote when it's convenient to vote. And if you're banking everything on, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when, you know, the 72-hour program that, that the Republicans had in 2004, which was all about getting people out on election day. And Karl Rove had this system 
and he was able to get it done and get George W. Bush over the top with people voting on election day. That's great for its time, but the laws have moved on. People's customs have moved on. And lots of states, there's a huge amount of the vote that happens early. Take Arizona, nine 90% or so of the vote there going into election that we expected it to be early or mail-in or some version of, of absentee. And you had a candidate in Carrie Lake who was trashing the idea of, of early voting, even though she said, you know, vote however you want. She said that she wants to have an election day society. They were banking on people to vote on election day. And they did. And that's one reason it took so long, but not enough of them did. <laughs> right. I know. Well, that was, and now you have Carrie Lake going, these people had to wait for hours and hours on election day, but why, you know? Right. Exactly. I mean, I think, I think, and you're seeing it in some of the statements that Republicans are putting out after the fact, the ones who are losing, including Blake Masters in Arizona saying, you know, we've got to wake up to the way that the system is built, either change the system or catch up to the way that people are living their lives and are actually voting right now. And you know what? In Florida, Ron DeSantis banked a huge amount of early vote. He didn't care about the Trump trashing of it. They banked it and they you could see it in the numbers early on that it was going to be a blowout. And in fact, it was. There are ways to do this. It's just well, Trump has made it hard. Yeah. Blake Masters is a terrifying racist. And I think the reason why he didn't win was he was a terrible candidate. I don't know. I just think with Blake Masters, like he had had all these ads that were like him shooting guns. I don't know that that is a relatable swing state message like, you know, civil war. And I think what I thought was so interesting about Blake Masters, and I say this as someone who is married to a VC. <laughs> so even though we're on the East Coast, I have lived in a world where I've always thought of technology as like a thing that will solve our problems. But what I saw with Blake Masters was this is a person with a, you know, some of these Silicon Valley people have very dark visions for this country. We live in a 50-50 country and right. there are a lot of 50-50 states. And there's a lot of voters that just vote re team red or team blue, and they look beyond the individual candidates and do that. Now, at the margins, it makes a difference. And that's where I think, look, Arizona, I think, was a winnable race for Republicans at the Senate level. Right. I think Georgia was definitely a winnable race for Republicans at the Senate level. Look at how many people voted for their candidate for governor at the same time. I'm not convinced that voters simply rejected the Republican candidates. In some part, they did. But I think also the tactics of getting people to vote early and getting people to engage in this election had to happen as well. People, this is a self-evident statement, but people have to vote for any of that stuff that you just said to matter, right? Even if someone is right. an awful human being in every conceivable way, election day and, and its run-up has to feature people actually voting against that person for that person to lose. That's how the system works. And, right. and that's that's where the tactics, I think, are, you know, Republicans are now fighting with the hand tied behind their backs if they're not able to encourage people to vote early because it just plain works as a as an organizing strategy. And you go into Election Day with with less less ground to make up. And, I, and we can rerun the election a million times and come up with different different outcomes. But even if everything you say about Blake Masters is true, voters had to actually do something about it. And they do it by voting and they vote in different ways than they used to in Donald Trump's vision of the world than they do right now. Right. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I still think like if you run someone who's not terribly creepy, people will vote for them. There was a fundamental disconnect there. I want to get into this idea of what the House looks like now, because yeah. we have this really, I mean, historically, this is the narrowest House margin in modern 
political history, yes or no? Likely to be. I mean, you know, we we have it at 218 to 220 range for the majority. You know, the Democrats just, you know, the, their outgoing Congress was a 222 to 213. Right. So it's not going to be that much different from that, but but it's going to be pretty pretty darn close. And for, you know, party coming in and for all of the expectations, you know, as you know, politics is often a game of expectations and they really fell short on the expectations piece of it. And we know the nature of what this majority is, and we know that that Kevin McCarthy is the, the presumptive leader. He doesn't even have the votes as of now to get to become the House Speaker, and he's going to have you know so little margin for maneuvering that he could be potentially ousted at any time. So a Democrat said to me the other day, you know, it might be that becoming the Republican House Speaker is like being a British Prime Minister these days. The revolving door is going to start is going to start swinging. <laughs> that would be really, really fun. Think about what, what a 220 or 219 majority means. I mean, members of Congress find other jobs. They pass away. Like it's possible that sometime in the next Congress, the power control shifts as crazy as that is. And actually, Jesse and I were talking about this. Every special election could shift the power of the House. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're going to do everything they can to, to convince people not to not to leave. I think that's actually one reason that Pelosi, Hoyer and Clyburn right. are all sticking around. They don't want to give McCarthy oh, any extra votes. Right. It's yeah, it is that close. But I, I, how McCarthy governs in that? I mean, being in the minority, you can do a lot just with investigations and with, um, you know, just being what the other guys aren't. But ultimately, he's going to have to get 218 votes for things. And sometimes that's going to be things that not everyone likes on the Republican side. And that's going to be where you see the real power of a small band, which could be the moderate side. It could be the MAGA side. It, um, it could be any any group of Republicans who feel emboldened. And Kevin McCarthy, you know, he's got a reputation. I've known him for a long time. He's, he kind of likes being everyone's friend. And this is not a job where you make friends. Ask Nancy Pelosi about that. I'm going to add in my own partisanship here. He's also an abject moron. So that could be problematic for him. But I guess he does. But I know people like him. Speaking of people who people don't like, Representative Andy Biggs, this morning at 920, gets on Twitter. I've seen enough. I cannot vote for Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. I do not believe he will get to 218. I refuse to assist him in this effort to get those votes. Discuss. I don't believe him. Matt Gates is saying the same things. I've seen things like this play out before. And Nancy Pelosi had to herself piece together the votes after some tough election cycles. Ultimately, the, if the alternative is making a making Hakeem Jeffries Speaker of the House... <laughs> <laughs> then, then they're going to vote for Kevin McCarthy. There's going to be deals cut. There's going to be people that hold their nose. There'll be people voting present. I mean, there, there's all kinds of like side things that can happen to make it work. But I, I, I just don't see a viable alternative. And Andy Biggs, who just tried to be that alternative, you know, got a couple dozen right. votes. You know, and I think ultimately he'll get there. It's going to be messy. It's going to be ugly. And he may lose it. <laughs> I think he gets there. And I think the, the Biggses and the Gateses of the world ultimately, you know, if they don't vote for him, they know that voting against him isn't going to stop him from becoming speaker because there really is no alternative. And I don't say that lightly. It's not just that there isn't another person out there. The way the mechanics work is the Democrats put up a candidate, the Republicans put up a candidate, and one of them is going to get a majority. And you want your team to win. Ultimately, they'd rather have McCarthy than, than Jeffries, 100 days out of 100. Right. No, no, no question. I don't know if you have this, but everyone I know, straight journalist, opinion journalist, we all are having a lot of sort of Donald Trump is back anxiety. Yeah. I think a lot of Republicans are having it. I think a lot of Democrats are having it. You know, there's a feeling we shouldn't talk about him because that will make him come true. There's a feeling that, and you know, he lies a lot, so you don't want to promote the lies. Is there a path 
to stopping this person from becoming, you know, the GOP nominee? Because I don't see a world where there is. I think a lot of things have to happen. And like, if you remember how he became nominee the first time, you'll remember how messy it was. And it was a function of the fact that there were 20 different Republicans running and they were all, you know, cannibalizing each other's votes. And he was winning with small amounts. I don't think he definitely loses. I also don't think he definitely wins. I think the path runs through the Republican primaries, first and foremost, because. Right. But the primaries are already easier now. They're more consolidated. So they're easier now to explain to me. Well, they, 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 yes, they, they, there's there's some things that make it easier to start running away with it early on if you start with right. some, some early victories. But th- there's so much that has happened before then. I mean, this is what I thought about his announcement. I mean, we are literally two years away from the election. Like we're going to go through right. a whole other Thanksgiving and Christmas and still no one will have voted next year. And so there's a lot of baseball. To and the, the big difference, you know, between this cycle and the last is that, you know, been there and done that on Donald Trump. He isn't the flashy new thing. And there are really appealing to Republicans, other candidates out there. He's not going to be alone in this primary. I'm 100 percent convinced of that. So let's just game this out for a minute, because I agree he's not going to be alone in this primary, which is why I think he might win this primary, Mm. because he has this relationship with his base. Right. Like it. Don't like it. He's like the Grateful Dead. Right. People go to his concerts. They wear T-shirts. They drive. I mean, it may still be the same 2,000 people going to each one, but they go. So here's my question for you. This guy has the diehard base, right? So say you have Mike Pence, right? And you have Mike Pompeo and you have Ted Cruz and you have Marco and you have this one and you have that one. Doesn't Donald Trump then even isn't he even more likely to win the primary then? It depends on what the whole what the whole makeup of it is. And I think, yeah, if it's if it's like 20 candidates again and he's got his his band of uh, of supporters, you know, 20, 30 percent of the party, then then, yeah, I think he's in a really good spot. But like, I, you know, I'm, I'm not a music guy, so I'm probably going to get this analogy wrong. But like Grateful Dead fans also like Dave Matthews Band. Right. Right. Like there's there's other there's other there's other music that might they might want to groove to at some point. I don't think that that will be perceived as some disloyalty to Trump. We've talked to a lot of Trump supporters at rallies and around the country say, I love the guy, but he's just too polarizing or he's just too out there and the January 6th was too much, whatever the thing that's a bridge too far, the people at his rallies are the people at his rallies. And I think you're right. They, they run through fire for him. But man, we talked to them. They like Ron DeSantis a lot too, you know, and, and they, they, they can be talked into liking a lot of other people if there is a robust primary debate. So all of us say, I'm not saying he can't win. He can, but I'm not saying he definitely will. I, I don't think we can look to the last cycle to be instructive in any way, shape or form, just because it's going to be different. The issues will be different. The stakes will feel different. The pacing of the campaign will be different. There's no modern precedent for a former president coming back and and trying to do this. The only, you have to go back to Teddy Roosevelt and he ended up starting his own party as a result of it. We can't look to any piece of history to be instructive on this, I think, including Trump's history. So I, you know, I think for liberals or even Republicans who are alarmed by Donald Trump, I say, then, you know, you're going to have your work cut out for you. But I don't think there's any inevitability around him, which, again, like a month or two ago might have been different. I think if this was a better election cycle for him or his candidates, maybe that would have been different. If it was a worse election cycle for Ron DeSantis, maybe that would be different. There'll be other Ron DeSantis's over the over the next, you know, six to 12 months that are, that are going to emerge. And it's going to be a battle. And by the way, if he loses the battle, I don't know many Republicans who think he's just going to, you know, quietly concede and fade away and endorse the 
the new nominee. I mean, that could be a real disaster for Republicans if he if he loses and doesn't accept it and tries to burn the party down on his way out. He was close to bolting the party after January 6th. And if he loses this time or any may have done it if he lost the, the primaries in 2016. So I think there's a lot that has to get figured out before we're talking about him as a nominee. Thank you so much. That was great, Rick. Thank you. You're welcome. My pleasure. And now your moment of fuckery. Molly Jungfast. Jesse Cannon. Didn't take long for Kevin McCarthy to be influenced by the MTG wing of the party. I thought for a second when it took Republicans so long to win the House, I I think they're still at like 218. Maybe there's one more race being called. You know, they have the House by a historically slim margin. I thought perhaps that might cause Republicans to not act in the completely demented fashion I knew they would, but... Humility and hubris for them? I I mean, you got it. You know, it's the Marjorie Taylor Greene caucus now, and the MAGA caucus controls... What poor, dumb, my Kevin, a.k.a. Kevin McCarthy, MTG is pulling the strings and the first string she's going to pull is, according to young Kevin, he's going to remove some of the friends of this show, members of Congress who are friends of this show from their committees, including Eric Swalwell, as well as Adam Schiff and Ilhan Omar. So he's already doesn't even have the gavel yet, not till January, but already he's planning. Uh, ways to behave badly and stunts. MAGA is all about stunts and Kevin will be performing lots of stunts. And Don't you think this is all about trying to make it look like his party isn't as bad as it is that when we threw MTG out, he's now trying to pretend that somehow these Congress people are equivalent to it? Yeah, of course. That's the whole idea. And he's trying to make a false equivalency and and say that Adam Schiff is the same as Marjorie Taylor Greene. And we all know that there is literally no parody. And so for that, the simple, simple, soon to be Speaker of the House, though for how long, no one knows, Kevin McCarthy gets a hearty fuck you. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. 
We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.